Radio Bio is adhering to COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders, and we are committed to producing fun and educational podcasts for your enjoyment. Please excuse the difference in the audio quality of our post-production while we use online tools to safely work from home. We appreciate you tuning in. Don't know much Hello, and welcome to Radio Bio. My name's Sonia Vargas. And I'm Cal Arnard. Today we have with us Dr. Kanaka Rajan from Mount Sinai, New York. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So starting off, broadly speaking, can you tell us a little bit about your research, what you study? I am a computational neuroscientist, so let me you know, start by saying exactly what that is. So I study how the brain does the things that it does, like learning, remembering, deciding, thinking by, you know, using the machinery that it has access to. So the brain has neurons that fire very fast. It is connected by, you know, individual synapses. And so, you know, how does that particular piece of machinery produce all of these intricate dynamical behaviors that we're all and and our rich internal states so that's basically the, you know, the research direction. And the way that I get at these is by building like these toy models of the brain. I build them on my computer, but you can think of them as, you know, Lego models. And so if I build something that, you know, makes like the Death Star and looks like the Death Star, then maybe the toy model and the real brain have similar operating principles. And so that's what this kind of simplified facsimile gets us is access. Um, complete access without, you know, worrying about the idiosyncrasies of the biology. So you're an engineer, you use computational neuroscience to understand the brain. What is a Lego piece? The Lego pieces that I'll be working with are model neurons. So they are, you know, little snippets of computer code that will also then make digital spiking or continuous electrical activity that resembles something that the real brain produces. And then I will wire those different units up together in a way that then collectively the Lego model of the Death Star rolls like the Death Star. This is where my Death Star analogy breaks down because I don't know what actually happens. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah, that's really deep that, you know, different researchers can use different size Legos, so to speak, or they can represent different things. That's right. And I think the biggest strength of an approach like this is the fact that, you know, you can kind of, these are modular, right? So you can, you know, mix and match these different pieces. And so, you know, you collect a bunch of tools and then you mix and match these pieces together and you can mimic different behaviors in a much simpler facsimile than the full complexity of the biological organism. That's fascinating. So to quick recap a little bit, you're saying that you need to think of like, brain regions as their own Legos, and then they contribute to the function of the entire brain. And like, that's the real kind of view about how we accomplish our tasks, like what cognition is about, basically. Cognition can be thought of as thinking. It's the process that our brains go through so that we can retain information. Any mental process you think of is likely a subset of cognition. Yeah, extremely well said. Yes, it's Legos all the way down. Does your research focus on any like specific behaviors or are you kind of like working on a bunch of different modules in your lab? So um, I can tell you about the 
project that I'm particularly excited about. So, so one of the things I like to think about is that, you know, even simple behaviors in the brain. So, you know, for example, if I put you in an fMRI machine and I told you to do something very simple, right? Like I'm going to click my fingers and every time you hear the click, close your eyes or something, right? It's a very simple, like one bit thing. You hear something, you do something, right? Association kind of task. Something like that will light up your whole brain. And this is not how people thought the brain worked at all. Another project I have involves, well, what happens when when an organism is exposed to stress? So, you know, there's there's regions of the brain that will respond to stress and other regions will manage those stresses. But let's say the process that help you manage the stress are not successful, as can happen in major depressive disease. And so for a person like that, let's say your toast burns at three o'clock in the afternoon in an adaptive brain state, that person's going to be able to shake it off or say, ah, the worst day ever, and then move on. But a person who has major depressive disease will literally curl up fetal, cannot move anymore. And that kind of feature is called learned helplessness. So how does a brain go from being able to process stresses in an adaptive way to perceiving all stresses as persistent and inescapable? So when you're building these models, like, what's your data input? Like, do you get data from people? Like, do you get fMRI data from people? And then you can understand the task they're trying to do. And then you, like, piece together, you know, their cognitive task based on which, you know, neurons are firing. Or do you do it completely computationally? How does it work? So people work in actually both sides. People can, you know, think of a process, imagine a mechanism by which it can unfold and then write down the equations that, you know, could lead to that kind of time-varying behavior and then model it. And I have certainly done that in my past. Like my PhD research was built on these kinds of abstract, more abstract models. But now I'm a much more data-driven theorist. And, you know, the luxury of being a theorist is that I'm not actually bound by, I'm not, you know, just a macaque physiologist or just a human physiologist, or, you know, I have the luxury of being more like a generalist. I build models constrained by the data directly. Can't do it without the data these days. Yeah, you're like triangulating uh, how brains function. That's fascinating. I mean, I kind of have to use tools that are like, you know, engineering tools or physics tools. It's really like, you know, the, the, the simplest thing I can say is that it's somehow like the love child of neuroscience and AI. Both very broadly defined and with a lot of hand waving thrown in. Wanted to ask you about how, how your work influences AI or like what does your work look like with artificial intelligence? I feel like that's kind of a sci-fi buzzword. Can you speak a little bit about that? You know, artificial intelligence, the field has a slightly different goal than neuroscience. So let's say for artificial intelligence, it's more like an engineering-based goal. In, for artificial intelligence, a question that I would be very interested in asking is, can I build a smallest machine that can do the most things? Performance, that's the goal, right? Or can I build the largest multi-region neural network model? Neural networks are a subtype of machine learning tools that help us understand complex data and processes, oftentimes to predict what might happen in the future. As you can probably tell from the name, neural networks were inspired by the many individual neurons in human brains. Just as they transmit and receive signals to and from other neurons in the brain via synapses, nodes within a neural network do the same to learn. 
But of course, the human brain is much more complex. That can, you know, play Bach or something, right? That's the goal. Now, the goal is performance there. The goal of neuroscience is of understanding the biology of it. That said, the two fields do inform each other, like intimately. So I use methods to train my neural network models based on methods that were originally developed by those AI engineers for a performance-based task somewhere, right? For beating state-of-the-art or SOTA, as they call it, on some task. And so I would use exactly the same kinds of learning algorithms to train my machine. But what I want to understand from this machine is the biology of it. So the question I want to ask is about understanding the actual biology of it, the mechanism by which the uh, the machinery that the biological brain has access to solves something. And so the two can inform each other. I wish they did more of it, uh, but we're still grappling with the tension because of the fact that the goals are a little bit different. I feel like I have to ask how similar are like our brains to computers Sure. Well, this is a troublemaker question, isn't it? I mean, people have these heated social media debates about is the brain a computer? And then they go on and on. Every year this has a little resurgence until, you know, people argue and no one, you know. Um, I mean, it's a computing device, right? I mean, the brain does computations, but I think that's where the analogy sort of breaks down hard. Because, um, you know, the biological machinery evolved over, uh, you know, evolutionary process and got to this place and it wasn't optimized to you know beat a certain performance goal and get to something right i mean it it did so that we could survive that we could move that we could you know basic fundamental processes like that and then real computers are stuff that we design and so in some sense they are limited by our imagination Although there are researchers that are working in AI that are working towards enabling these computers with more and more what they would call human-like qualities, or, you know, AGI is a term, artificial general intelligence is something that gets thrown around a lot, and that they will somehow, you know, come to life and kill us all. So yeah, the brain computes things using squishy biological materials, and got there by evolution. And so, yes, if it is a computer, it's a very weird computer. Is there some sort of bias that can get inserted into computers? So, yeah, certainly. Like, computers actually excel at heuristics. Heuristics are shortcuts that can be implemented in computers to simplify their computations. Humans have also evolved these algorithms as mental shortcuts that reduce the number of cognitive tasks we must perform such as the light from above heuristic, which makes optical illusion so puzzling because we, as humans, assume light always comes from above and thus assume that things that we see reflect this assumption. The easiest thing you can teach a computer to do is to make a big lookup table. Like to say, you know, here's all the inputs and here are all the outputs that are possibly gonna match the set of inputs and then I'm done. And then that's it. Like I, I can estimate, you know, all these um, time intervals in my day because I've experienced them all and now I've trained it. And then that's that. Right. But the slow stuff, learning, thinking, remembering, deciding, dreaming, all of those things we're still struggling with. That piece is not that easy to model. That's the crux, really. That has to come from, I think, slow stuff, right? Like that has to come from knowledge that you can't very easily put into a lookup table. 
I'd love to like get into like talking about what people maybe don't know that need to know that want to get into your field and what you love about being a researcher and yeah, advice for future scientists. Okay, so let me tell you what I really love about the job and then why I think people, more people should do it. Well, so what I love about being a you know professional scientist, you know, just being a researcher is, well, two things really. Intellectual freedom is one. And, you know, the ability to actually mentor and speak to people one-on-one and change their, you know, really their education style. That's the second. So the best part about having my own lab is that I can think about anything and pick the problem that I want to think about that day. And so you get this intellectual freedom to go and pick problems in this vast pool because we really know very little about the brain. So intellectual freedom, that's the biggest one. And then mentoring is the other one that I mentioned. And so, you know, academia is not an easy path, um, especially for people that are traditionally underrepresented in, in STEM fields. And so, you know, having my own lab gives me the privilege to build a community of thinkers that, you know, can help me solve these important problems and then also to support their development. I mean, it is a privilege, right? Not many people have this kind of job, and it's a privilege to foster the next generation, and one that I hope is much more diverse than the one I have come up in. So I think my generation has the opportunity to make a make a big dent within the scientific community, and so I hope that in ten years I can look back and you know say not bad. So that's those are sort of the you know that's what I kind of love about it. And we need to lower the barrier to entry. And I think that's, those are two key things. And so we don't want to take up too much of your time, but I guess we could just wrap up really quick if you want to just finish your thought on advice. So people that want to embark on, you know, science as a career, I would say, you know, find something else that also drives you. So, you know, first of all, pick the scientific problem that gets stuck in your teeth. It has to bug you. Um, and I understand not many people have the freedom or the luxury or the privilege to be able to do that. Like, you know, there's many graduate students who just have the problem assigned to them. But as soon as you're able to or find yourself in a position where you can dream those dreams, maybe pick something that annoys you. And it's that little like grating thing. Like I, the best thing I can think of is, is something stuck in my teeth. So I wake up and it bugs me, right? It's in my teeth that's when I'm like going to crack a problem. Um, So it has to be that feeling. And, you know, anyone that sees a dog gnawing on a bone will know exactly what I'm talking about. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to interview with us. This is Radio Bio signing off. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, the Graduate Division, and the University Friends Circle at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcasts at www.radiobio.net. Interviewers on this podcast were Sonia Vargas and Cal Larnard. This podcast was edited by Ryan Torres and produced by Maya Powell. Art was done by Nat Brown.